Again, uh, final week of our, our series, um, the big question for the series was, uh, how can we consistently see Jesus in the kingdom and, um, and not see the things that we don't need to see? And, and I'm sure you're getting this idea that the biblical idea of eyes and, and vision and, and focus really relate to what we're attentive to. Right? It doesn't have to do just with our eyes, right? In our downtime, where does our attention go? In our hearts, in our affections, right? What, what do we play with in our mind when we're bored and don't have anything else really to think about? Vision, again, just isn't about eyes. It's really about what we sense and we perceive with all of our senses, our minds and our hearts and, and even our, our hands or our smell. I mean, it's all involved in, in worshiping and keeping our, our focus on, on Jesus Christ. And, and the thing I want to talk about this morning is this focus, um, it has to be intentional, right? It's not instinctual at all. It does not feel natural. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel comfortable at first, incredibly uncomfortable, unnatural, not right at first. When you start sacrificially giving and giving of yourself, you're, something inside you is like, man, this is odd. It's like trying to write left-handed if you're a righty or right-handed if you're a lefty. It's just like you, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I might be able to get this, but it's going to take some doing because I'm kind of making a mess of things here at the first. I can't even read my own writing. This is just, this is a mess, right? So, so we understand that to be a Christian is, doesn't, it's not the most natural thing because the most natural thing is to look out for yourself, right? To protect yourself and your own and make sure that you get what you deserve. That's, that's what's natural. That's what feels right in our lives. To keep that focus, we've actually got to develop plans, develop habits for what we want to see and what we don't want to see in life. Um, I know people live instinctually, and they, these images, these things just keep popping up in their lives, and I think, well, you know, with a little tiniest bit of planning, those things would not be popping up in your life, right? You are placing yourself in positions where those things pop up, right? You're not planning. You're not really thinking through. You're just reacting, just instinct, and we do that. I want to share some words of a pastor, writer, a speaker guy named Paul Tripp starts off the quote with this line, we don't live by instinct. And I, and I think we know that, but let me get it, let me get a, allow it to be a little bit more involved here. Um, it's a very imprecise word, instinct. At its lowest level, we have something called self-organization or self-assembly, right? There's really no discernible decision-making going on, right? No discernible decision-making processes going on, pure reaction to environment. Lowest level of life forms, trees, bacteria, these things do what they're supposed to do. The tree becomes a tree, not by somebody coaching it, not by somebody teaching it to think worthy thoughts or anything like that. The tree is gifted by God to become a tree, to produce seeds, to produce another tree. It's just what it does. Bacteria, all lower life forms, God gives this gift of self-assembly. Self Right? They become what they're supposed to become, and they don't really need us or anybody else. Um, at a different level, and, and again, even at this level, you'll say, Pastor Jerry, Pastor Jerry, I know people that aren't necessarily trees or bacteria, and they operate by this method. And I, and I will say, I know, and that's a problem. It's a big problem. At the next level is something called agency, and that's where you have the ability to make a decision to do something or not to do something, even when instinct is pressing on you to do something else, right? This is what we get in the middle life forms. Maybe I'm just going to go with cats and dogs, right? There's, there's some, we can see that the cat and dogs are making decisions, right? 
The cat makes a decision, I, I hate you, right? And, they, and it's clear they're making that decision, and the dog makes the same decision, the opposite decision, I love you, I love you, and I'll slobber all over you, I love you, I love you. I can see these, we can see our cats and dogs, those who have cats and dogs, we, we know that they make decisions, right? Maybe more than you assume, but we know there's some decision-making going on. But at the same time, lots of instinct, lots of instinct, right? You've seen a dog at halftime in the middle of a football field doing their business, right? So there's, there's agency, but there's also a lot of instinct going on still. Now, let's move to a little bit higher level. Um, at the highest level, uh, decision-making is clearly evident. Um, free will, right? This, this idea of free will, our lives are directed by thoughts and motives of our hearts, and we're always interpreting, we're always desiring. And at this highest level, humans, and possibly some higher life forms, we hear about this all the time. I recently heard about ravens. They're apparently incredibly smart. Lots of decision-making going on in those little brains, right? If you're mean to a raven, right, if you do something to it, they will remember you. And they will spend the rest of their lives planning and desiring to poo on your car only. I've read this. This is true. So it's not just humans, right? We're sharing this globe with some higher life forms that appear to be making some decisions. As far as I can tell, it's pretty uncanny. But even at this free will level, we're not entirely choosing freely. I don't know if you're aware of that. Our language, right? our, our, our culture, what, what culture says is right and what's not right. Society expectations, all of those things, they, they greatly narrow the decisions available to us. So we're not 100% free. To a certain extent, the world tells us what we're supposed to be doing, how we're supposed to be acting, how we should react and not react, what's a normal reaction. And when you get that big-eyed look, you know you stepped outside of the norms, outside of societal expectations. And this is a problem that a lot of these things are going on around us, shaping our thinking without us even being aware of it. Almost to the point where we're reacting by instinct. And again, huge problem. The Apostle Paul calls this being conformed to the patterns of this world. And he basically says in that passage, as you go on a little bit further, he says, you got to plan, you got to think, you got to transform your mind so that the world doesn't conform you, so that you don't fit flow into the mold of this world without thinking about it because it's got a mold and you will flow into it whether you like it or not unless you are actively planning not to be a part of that mold. It takes planning. It takes habits. We live in perpetual pursuit of something. This is the quote continued. We're always evaluating our progress toward that thing that we think will give us life. But here's the rub. Our base, our, our carnal instinctual desires in life that seem to promise the good life, that seem to promise the life that, that we want, that we're seeking, that, that we're after, um, they're at war. I don't know if you're aware about these. These instinctual desires are at war with our calling in Christ, right? Christ calls us to a step above what we would naturally do. And we understand that what we will naturally do is serve ourselves, but but Christ has a calling on each and every one of us. And, and that means there's going to be a little bit of a battle inside every one of us. A battle that can be won. There's no doubt about it. It can be won. But it will be, it's a battle. 
It's a battle between what we want, what we naturally desire, and what Christ has called us to, something much higher than what we naturally want. So we have these instinctual desires, but we also have this calling, which requires the development of new habits, new way of viewing and interacting with the world that isn't, again, instinctual at all. It doesn't feel normal. doesn't feel right. I'm going to finish the quote. We're always in the service of some kind of dream. We are always in the service. Every one of us are in the service of some kind of dream, and you know what that dream is. I don't. I know what my dream is. I know I've probably multiple dreams, but more than likely there's one that kind of is a priority, that when push comes to shove, that one always, that one should win, right? That, 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 that desire, that dream we have. Maybe this is the best way to say it. In every moment of life and ministry, everyone lives for something, and I think that's true. And here's the crazy thing. Many times, the clashes between people occur when folks are living for opposing dreams, opposing ideas, which aren't necessarily, listen very carefully, aren't necessarily good or bad or sinful at all. They're just different. Right? Well, my wife and I, we were getting married. We were planning on getting married. So we went to marriage counseling, and the marriage counselor asked us both a whole bunch of different questions, and he called us into the room says, I've got some red flags. Diane seems to be living for her dream is a family. And Jerry, yours, that doesn't show up at all as I've talked with you. You seem to be, all you seem to be caring about is a career. I was, I was maturing. I was getting it together. Um, and, and he sat us down and says, look, I mean, this isn't insurmountable, but y'all are living for different dreams at this point. And unless you figure this out, your marriage is going to be awfully rocky. And if you don't figure it out, I would suggest you not get married. <laughs> it's like, well, this was fun. But it helped. It, it, it really did help us. We, we talked about it in um, 40 years this coming summer. So, hey, yeah, we did all right. Yeah, woo this morning, I'd like to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm going to call them the Philippines. I just know I am. The Philippians. Paul spent the first three chapters of his letter to the Philippians um, discussing different dreams, basically, right? He, in, in three chapters, he says you, you have two options, really. You, you can, your, your dream can be to live for the, this world, or you can live for God's kingdom, right? You can live for the kingdoms of this world, or you can be a citizen of God's kingdom. And, and for three chapters, he just kind of plays with this idea. What does it look like to be a kingdom of the world, and to be a citizen of the kingdom of the world, or to be a citizen of, of God's kingdom? And then at chapter 4, he starts talking about how, how this, this happens, how, what it looks like to live a life in God's kingdom. A life worthy of the gospel and unity and joy in Christ's likeness. So this is, this is kind of where the letter is going. So at the very beginning, we got chapter 4, verse 1. It says, therefore, and again, therefore, you understand every time you see that, something went on before. Therefore, I'll just kind of fill it in for you. Therefore, if you call yourself a citizen of heaven, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my crown, my joy, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And he has been explaining the way you stand firm, the way you are as a citizen in God's kingdom. Therefore, stand firm. And this is kind of a transition to what he wants to talk about in chapter 4 and what I'm going to be talking about. 
Stand firm in the Lord, right? Without the firm foundation provided by the self-giving, the self-emptying of Jesus Christ, right? You're standing on sinking sand, shifting sand, right? We got songs. We got a, a story by Jesus, a parable, this idea of a firm foundation and shifting foundations and anything else that we call the foundation of our life, if it isn't Jesus Christ, you know it's moving, right? You, you've seen it. The foundations move a lot in this world, but Christ is the firm, the firm foundation. So in verse 1, it's kind of the bridge between chapters 1 through 3, what should be, and now we're going to launch into chapter 4, what is, and here's, here's what is in the church at Philippi. I plead with Eurodia. And I plead with Sintiche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So we've got a problem going on in the church of Philippi. Nothing new, nothing new in the church world. Anybody who's been going to church for more than a month realizes that sometimes people have differing opinions. That's perfectly normal, perfectly normal. Here's what we know. We know very little about this sharp disagreement, but we do know, we do know that it wasn't insurmountable. The way Paul talks about it, it's not flippantly, but it's, hey, you two are having an issue, and, and, and it's in, in verse 3 it says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his love, I've, I've, I've jumped ahead there, that's, that's chapter um, 2 of Philippians, ignore that, I plead with you, be of the same mind in Christ, and I want you to notice again that firm foundation is in Christ. It's not in their opinions. It's not in being right. It, it's having a unity in Jesus Christ. And, and, and what does it look like to be of the same mind of Christ? I'm going to show you a passage. I know you've all seen this passage many times. It's from, it's, I'm going to go back a couple chapters. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's something I, I know you've all heard of. It. And every time I read it, I'm just a little bit amazed, a little bit mystified. What did Christ do exactly what did he give up and what did he take on to save my life, right? What, what kind of mindset do we need to take on to save the lives of relationships here in this building and in this community? What kind of mindset will it take to not be at odds with one another, right? To be actually united in love and not just united in a building for an hour a week, right? We can pull that off, but are we actually united in Christ, right? The easiest thing to do is, well, I'm just, I'm not yelling at him anymore. <laughs> and I don't think mean thoughts about him anymore. And, and like being happy with that, but that's not what Christ is calling us for. He's calling us something much, much higher than just getting along. He's calling us to a unity, a unity in love. And again, this is Philippians chapter two. I'm going to go back a couple chapters. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, right? I want you to notice something before I move on, the communion in the Spirit. Again, he's not telling the Philippians, hey, stop living for yourselves and just live for Jesus. I just want you to notice that. He's saying something just a little bit more, all right? Jesus is not just a good example. Paul's saying that unless you are filled with and live by my Spirit, you will fail in the calling that I've given you. You will fail. If you think you can do this on your own, under your own understanding, under your own power, just following the good example, it's going to fail. To do anything less than to be filled with my spirit and to live by my spirit, to do anything less is to begin a movement back to operating by instinct instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts. 
Verse 2 and 3 says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, which is basically the opposite of humility. We all know this. Verse 3 through 5, Rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. And this is what he continues to talk about throughout his letter. And that's what he's talking about where we're at in chapter 4. He started talking about it way at the beginning of the chapter. He talks about it in every one of his letters. This is what he talks about. This is Paul's thing. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. For years, theologians have focused on what all Jesus gave up. Like, oh, you can't sit in air-conditioned heaven anymore. Oh, he doesn't carry around a God button anymore. Oh, and, and this, this idea of the, that, that God had to give up some things. Theologians have kind of moved kind of to the end of that phrase, what did he have to take on? He has to do this now. He has to do this now. Right? It's, it's, it's something to give up things. Right? Between that level of giving up and this level of taking on, that's a big gap. Yeah, he gave up divinity, but he had to take on us. <laughs> I, I think he could have dealt with this one, but this one's a big one. Right? He had to go all the way down and suffer with us. Not only give up a few things, but he had to take on our stuff, our garbage. And the key here is that gap, right? How do we close that gap between what should be and, and what is? And how much love can we muster to close that gap? Because that gap does represent love. If you love somebody, that gap closes. Right? What, what, what they promised and what they gave you, if you love them, psh, there's no gap. You'll make up a thousand excuses, a thousand reasons. But if you don't like somebody, that gap grows. And there is nothing that you can put in that gap that's going to close it because you know, the person that you're mad at is a big, giant loser. So. So the key is that gap, right? Exactly how far between there and here did Jesus come to save us? To close the gap between our pride and his love. And how far will we go to close that gap? I'm going to keep reading verse 8. It says this, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we've got to be willing to go pretty far to close the gap. Right Between our opinions and all the pride that's attached to our opinions, we all got it. Right? We all got opinions, therefore we all got pride behind those opinions. Right? How do we close the gap between that and somebody else's loving opinion? How do, we, how do we close that gap? To be of the same mind as Christ Jesus is to be united in love in the very face of differing opinions. It's easy to have unity when everybody agrees with you, but can we still have unity when there's disagreement? That's, that's going to be the kicker. That, that, that'll, be, that'll be the big test. Okay, I'm going to jump back to chapter 4 now. Paul's advice. I want you to listen to his advice and his plan. I want you to listen to his tone of voice. 
right? So he's writing to a church that he has helped start. There's a problem in it. It's not a huge problem, as we're going to find out right here. Listen to this. It says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. He's, he doesn't dislike these two ladies, right? He clearly likes, he's, he's worked beside them. And I want you to notice something the, in, in the Greek here. They're not just followers of Jesus Christ. They are co-workers, right? These ladies are, are church leaders. I don't know what they do, but they're leaders. They have led beside Paul, not under Paul. They have led beside Paul. And so Paul knows, I know we can solve this because I know both of you. I know your hearts, and so I'm calling on the church. I, I don't even need to come to Philip. I don't need to address this situation because I trust the church. The church can handle this if they're united in love. The church can handle just about anything if they're united in love. Again, you'll notice he loves the church. He loves the people in the church. And why so much confidence? Right? Because... They'd worked beside him. He, he knew them. But Paul also knew that internal strife, which is this, this is what this represents, and external persecution, which was going on in the church pretty much nonstop, stop and go, stop and go, nonstop almost. He knew that if this wasn't dealt with immediately, that people wouldn't stand firm any longer. They would stand on their rights, and they would stand on their opinion and their pride and that's not a firm foundation. So Paul lays out for the entire church. He kind of just moves on past this, sort of. Kind of referring back to what he lays out for the entire church. Here's just a few habits. Here's, here's how you end up not angry at each other, not speaking to each other. Here's how you... Solve your issues before they become big, big problems. Just a couple very simple steps, amazingly simple steps. Start verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. And I know sometimes we think, really, there are two kinds of joy and happiness. And one is not joy and the other is happiness. In the Bible, those two words are interchangeable. But there are two sources I think, in the Bible and from our experience, there, there's one that, that someone says something funny and we bust out laughing. It's just kind of a spontaneous, it wasn't planned, it happened, you saw something funny on TV, you laughed, right, a baby laughing, uh, you just, big smile on your face, all these things, they're not planned, they, they happen, and, and, and that is, the Bible loves it, right, the Bible says rejoice in everything, be happy in everything, and, and, and throughout God's word, right, he calls us to be happy over a meal, right, over somebody getting home late from a date, right, we're, we're happy, but then there's another kind of joy that Paul's talking about, his that you have to plan for. Sometimes there are days, I don't know about you, days are kind of going south and you're just thinking, okay, Jerry, count your blessings. And then after a few minutes, what happens to your attitude? Right? It changes, but it took, it took work. It wasn't natural. It wasn't the first thing that came to mind because you were having a horrible, rotten day. But you knew, you knew if I just stop, 
And if I look around, I bet you I can find something to smile about. And that's what Paul's talking about here. So just stop, look around, find something. Because there, if you can't find something to be joyful about, there's something wrong with you. Right? Even in the worst of situations. Right? And Paul knows what he's talking about. He's sitting in prison. He's locked up. He's, he's, his days are numbered. And yet he can say, don't worry. Don't worry. Rejoice in everything. Find something. And again, sometimes we're going to have to really, really, really look. Call somebody. Hey, help me find something good in this world because I ain't finding it today. And they will help you find something beautiful. And this is what Paul is saying. Find something because it's there. It's there. No matter what kind of day, what kind of day you're having. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Karl Barth is a theologian. He says, joy in Philippians is a defiant nevertheless. I don't care what's happening in my world. I will rejoice and praise the Lord. I don't care who just left. I don't care who hates me. I don't care about any of that kind of stuff because I know God loves me. And I'm good with that. That's, that, that's a good one to hold on to. Another piece of advice with a very, very simple statement following, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. So a statement, a, a directive, and then just this statement kind of just hanging out there. Let your gentleness, we'll start with that. Gentleness is a very, very hard word. If you look at 12 different translations, you will find 12 different words for this word. It's apparently a very hard to translate word. The Greeks called it justice and something better than justice. And this is a quote, it should come in when strict justice becomes unjust because of its generality, generality, the broad brush stroke of, of law. There are times where a perfectly just law becomes unjust, and a person who has this quality, a person has this quality if they know when not to apply the letter of the law and when to relax justice and introduce mercy. I just love these descriptive phrases. Gentleness didn't really tell me all that. It just told me to be meek, kind of. And so it's fun to look back and, and how did they, how did the original audience, how did they use these words? How did they hear them? And this is an incredible level of love that just sometimes lays the rules down. The rules won't help in this situation. It'll just make things worse. It's going to make somebody angry. So how about let's just go with grace. The rule's important. We're not dumping the rule by any stretch. But in this situation, at this time, for this person, let's just lay it aside. And let's just be filled with grace. And kind of look the other way. For their benefit. Knowing that you have a relationship with them. And this isn't the last conversation you're having with them. You're not throwing out the rule. You're, you're just laying it aside for just a moment. Kind of like God's patience with us. You recognize how patient he is with you, how many silly things you think and do. And he instant, instantly loves and forgives. This, this is what they're talking about here. And the one last, that idea that the Lord is near. Paul is basically telling them, the Roman Empire has been telling you Caesar is Lord. And in this simple statement, he's telling them, no, the real Lord is near. Caesar, we're not talking about Caesar. 
because he's not near, he doesn't care, he's not going to provide the peace that you want. But the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And then one last crucial habit, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and pet- petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Literally, stop worrying about anything. And that's a crazy request. Let me get into it just a little bit. We understand that Paul isn't asking us not to care, not to pray for people, not to worry over their poor choices, right? We do that. We're called to do that. We are called to step into that gap between somebody's poor decisions and and a solution. We are called to step into that gap, and it does require a little bit of angst, a little bit of anxiety. It truly, truly does. We're called to do that. But he does speak against worrying, a, a type of worrying that betrays a lack of trust in God. See, Paul, prayer is, is, represents he and God working confidently together towards God's solutions. Rather than Paul taking on the solution himself, taking on the problem, taking on everything, and correctly, <laughs> with lots of anxiety and worry, how are we going to implement my plan? Right? That's what introduces all the worry and all the anxiety when we decide that we'll, we'll take on the solution, we'll decide the solution, we'll take care of all of that. At the heart of unhealthy worry and anxiety is a desire to control. My wife pointed me out to a really good devotional. If any of you guys are looking for a, a devotional online, it's called First Five. Check it out. Um, she showed me. I was talking to her about the message. She was sharing this. I, I, that's making it into the message. It's about control. When we worry, here, here's the way we usually do it, right? We, we kind of give it to God, we'll give something to God, and then we immediately take it back. This is something, a meme I saw on, uh, this is me trying to monitor the things I left in God's hand. Hey, it's me again, just checking up on the status, right? Which is very, very thinly, thinly disguised. Are, are you, have you taken care of what I needed you to take care of in the way I wanted you to take care of? That's, what, that's really what's going on here is we're checking and kind of comparing. Are you doing it the way I suggested, God? Because it really would have worked, right? Or are you doing some other way that, you know, whatever. This, this is kind of the way that we do it. Whether we realize it or not, we, we worry because we, we have this need to control. We are humans. We have the ability to control our situation. We don't act by instinct, right? We have free will. And so we know we can make decisions, and so we tend to lean into that, and God says, stop it. In certain places in your life, stop it. Stop leaning on your own understanding, right? Let's seek my solution. Worry equals pride. I mean, it really does. Of course, we surrender to God. We've got to do our work, do our part, to work through our problems, right, in godly and constructive ways, but control is, is, is a big issue, I think, for everyone when we are worrying and when we have anxiety. Um, I know I've gone through it a lot, and, and the big issue for me is I, I think of ways, and then I think about all the ways that my plan will fail, and because it all depends on me, and did I call the right person, did I, 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 and I can't handle that many eyes. I just, I can't handle that many eyes. And eventually, Diane talks me into being a big boy and turning it all over to God. And it's always quite amazing. Truly amazing. Here's what Ron Ryder said. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. It will not make your prayers go away. Excuse me, it won't make your problems go away. 
but it will radically change your attitude and your perspective toward your problems in a way that you can handle them and find a way to smile and say, you know what, I can move forward in this situation. Yeah, there's a lots of garbage going on, but there's, there's some good. And I can, I, can, I can do this. I can do this. The key, and again, if, if control is the key, chances are that the peace of God won't come until we decide that being right isn't as important as being of one mind. And usually that's where it comes down when it becomes a pro relational problem is we're absolutely certain that our way is right. And I think at a certain point, somebody has to step away from what they believe is right and step towards somebody who they think is wrong. And just, let's go with your plan. Let's go with your plan. And then Paul tells them the consequences and results of this, this frame of mind and the peace of God which transcends all understanding and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Guarding is a military term. Again, if you had heard this 2,000 years ago, your thoughts would have immediately gone to the Roman garrisons that are spread throughout the Roman Empire. And through force and coercion and threats and pain of death, they brought the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It's like, well, what kind of peace is that? What Paul is saying here is we don't need government. We don't need Pax Romana. We don't need any of that to guard our hearts, right? Christ Jesus alone will guard our hearts. When we bring things to him, when we think good thoughts, when we, right, he'll guard our hearts. He concludes his thoughts with two powerful verses. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, if there's any good in the world, if there's any good in any situation, celebrate it, embrace it. It doesn't have to have spiritual tag signs on it. right? If it's beautiful, if it's praiseworthy, embrace it and celebrate it. That's a good way to find things to be happy about in this world, find things to be joyful about, right? Just find it, and again, it doesn't have to be a spiritual thing, right? In God's mind, everything is spiritual. His entire creation is his creation. Everything is spiritual. Don't divide things up into spiritual and secular. That's a mistake. If there's anything, right, keeping our focus where God wants it means being able to accept the bad things, and the failures, but to be able to keep forward focusing on the beautiful good things in any situation, in any circumstance. And I want you to notice something about this list. This is not a Hebrew list of holiness. This is not a list from the Hebrew Bible at all. This is really a list of the very, very secular Roman people. Paul's doing something amazing here. He's speaking to a Greek audience. He says, you're not Hebrew, you're not Jewish like me. We got our words, we got our things, but you have some beautiful things about your culture. Lean into them. You Greeks, you Romans, right? You, you got a few things backwards, but you have a lot of really, really beautiful things. Hang on to them. And what Paul is doing is he's creating this incredible conversation with the people outside the church. You're beautiful too. Right? You have beautiful things in your life. Let's celebrate them together. Let me help you find the author of that beauty so that you can celebrate him. 
But you're beautiful too. You don't have to be a part of my church to be beautiful. The world is beautiful. People just have to be loved, and you see things come out. And pretty soon they decide, yeah, they want to worship Christ too. They want to have the same joy you want to have. And then he says, think on these things. Think about these things. Meditate on these things. And again, this isn't the kind of meditation, Eastern meditation, where you're, you're striving for emptiness. In fact, this is the exact opposite. Christian meditation is, is to think on and be filled with God. You're not striving for emptiness in Christian meditation. You're striving to be filled to the brim, to overflowing with God so that all your thoughts are taken captive by God. Think about these things. Meditate. Go ahead and use that word. Hang out on these words. How can you make them happen in your life? Again, recognize the good wherever it's found and use it in service to Christ. There's so many good things in this world. We just need to turn it into service to Christ, kind of give it a little tweak. I believe that all things on this earth were originally meant for good, but humans got a hold of them and used them for our selfish benefits, and we twisted them, we perverted them, but they can all be won back. They can all be redeemed by the love of Christ if we turn it back over to his service. And to do the opposite, right, to think less than of someone is to fall right back into the service of the evil one a move further and further from love and finally verse 9 we'll close with this whatever you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you I know it sounds awfully arrogant but understand, Paul isn't referring to or bragging about his perfect life. In fact, if you go one chapter back in chapter 3, he basically says, I don't have it all together, right? So he's not really talking about this. It's kind of like a coach, right, teaching somebody brand new to a sport. Here's how you do this. Here's how the body moves. Here's the, the technique. I'm not doing it perfectly, but here's how you do it. Literally, Paul's doing this. He's taking a group of Greek people who's, who these, these, idea of, of, these ideas of self-sacrifice and self-giving is so foreign in their culture and their understanding. He's saying, look, what I'm showing you, I won't do it perfectly, but it's going to be radically different than the way you've been running your lives. You've been living for yourselves, right? So I'm going to show you a better way to live. I'm not perfect, but I'm just showing you something that's so radically new, I kind of got to show you. So again, we don't get into the bragging, and, and in fact, a lot of us, we say, well, I can't teach, I can't do this, I can't have, because I'm not perfect. None of us are, right? We're all striving for that. We're all moving towards that. But I'll tell you what, a lot of you have a lot more information than you think you have that can be passed on to younger people, newer Christians, not necessarily younger Christians. You do. You don't have to be perfect. You have a lot to give. I want to encourage you. To get back, to continue to give. Here's what Paul's trying to tell us this morning. Everyone lives for something. And lots of life, it's okay to simply live by instinct, right? Operating at a level not requiring too much decision-making, right? We laugh, we love. That's, that's great. That's really, really good. But in some areas, we've got to be proactive, right? We have to decide if we want it, 
We have to make daily decisions to grasp it. And lots of those decisions are really, really difficult. Dropping our pride, humbling ourselves. Right? You've got to live for it. It can't just be an occasional decision. Right? You've got to live for it. It's got to be at the forefront of your mind. I will give. I will sacrifice for my neighbor. Because if you're not planning to do it, you won't do it. Right? We know that. We know that. We've got to be honest with ourselves. If we're not planning to do it, we're probably not going to do it. I always wondered. Erodia and Sintiche, which one humbled themselves first? Again, we don't know anything about them. Two ladies. My feeling is one of them crossed the aisle. I don't know if she was right or if she was in the wrong. I get, the, again, the impression it was just different. But one of those two ladies took all this advice. They went up to the other lady and said, this, is, this, this isn't working. This can't continue like this. Let's hug. Let's give each other a holy kiss and let's work on this. And let's plan to continue to move forward in this fashion. If y'all bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for Paul's words. Because, Lord, we always, we, we get into it with people. We just do. But, Father, none of these things are insurmountable because we have a firm foundation. We know how to act, and we have your Holy Spirit in us reminding us how to act and, and encouraging us to act and, and giving us strength to act. So, Father, help us lean into that in a strong, strong way. Thank you, Father, for this church. Thank you for just all the beautiful people, the beautiful things going on and the places we're going to go. Thank you, Father, for leading the way. In your son's name I pray. Amen.